Thanks for tuning in to the ISEF podcast. This episode is brought to you by File Invite, automated document collection for student recruitment professionals. The thing that really impressed me was that how incentive schemes and, and more money was, of course, welcomed by agents, but it really was not the key driver. And I think that's something that we've misunderstood. This and more in this new episode of the ISEF podcast, your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Thanks, Lucinda, and welcome back, everyone, to the ISEF podcast. My name is Martijn van Veen, and this month's main topic is the educator-agency relationship. Is there room for improvement? Oliver Fortescue from Edified and Bobby Mita from the British University's International Liaison Association, WILA, are joining us today to talk about their recent report that talks about the specific roles and responsibilities of education agents. We'll also be answering a question received from our audience, as we do in each episode, and this month's sponsor, File Invite, will explain how student recruitment professionals can easily and securely manage transcripts, education history, applications and visas from applicants all in one spot. So lots to talk about, but we'll start as usual with a brief overview of some of the most recent news, trends and developments together with student recruitment specialist Craig Riggs, editor of ISAF Monitor and of ISAF Insights Magazine. Craig, let me first congratulate you on the publication of ISAF Insights Magazine 2021. Oh, thanks very much, Martin. We're very excited to see it come out this fall. Well, for those, probably not too many, that are unfamiliar with this annual publication, Insights Magazine provides reporting and original analysis on current and emerging trends that are affecting our industry and includes contributions from global student recruitment industry leaders. I mean, it's a great read and it's available for free on icef.com insights. Craig, what are some of the main topics in this year's ISAF Insights Magazine? Well, the big topic is the pandemic, of course, and the theme of the issue is, is really restarting mobility. And, and what we're doing from cover to cover is looking at some of the strategies and uh, ideas that we're seeing at play in the marketplace now as educators and agents are working to restart mobility and to better support students who are coming to campus or studying remotely uh, this year and moving into next year. ISAF Insights Magazine also talks about the expanding role for education agencies, and indeed the prediction is that their role will soar in the so-called new normal. In the U.S., however, a section in a recently passed law appears to prohibit U.S. educators from compensating agents for international student recruitment. Should we be concerned? You know, I don't think so. I mean, it has been a matter of concern. And there is, in the U.S., there is a historical pattern that aims to restrict the use of incentive-based recruitment. This is primarily a domestic-based concern. However, it has leaked over into international recruitment in the past, and there's been a need from time to time to clarify that is well within the acceptable standards and guidance for U.S. institutions to engage with international education agents for international recruitment. And so in that sense, it's been a concern that there has been a new piece of legislation introduced in June, um, which has nothing to do with international recruitment, but is aimed at federal funding for higher education programs for U.S. military veterans. But uh, it happens that in this legislation, while there's a restriction on incentive-based recruitment, it doesn't carve out or make an exception for international recruitment. And that was where the concern has been the last few months. So it's, it's definitely caught everyone's attention. 
Right, I will understand that. But I guess the correction of the omission in this law is indeed crucial for the US educators' ability to reverse a decline in international students. And I also recall that as recent as in July of this year, the Biden administration's education and state departments issued a joint statement of principles in the support of international education. So it seems to me that this is indeed an omission in that law and that we will probably see it corrected very soon. What do you think? I think so. I mean, there was alarm at first, you know, is this a move to restrict the use of of agents, domestic and international? It really looks as time goes on like it was just an error, an omission in the legislation. And in fact, there are are two bills working their way through the halls of, of government in Washington right now that aim to provide an exception for international recruitment that would allow institutions in the U.S. to continue to engage with education agents as they have been doing. And indeed, over the last several years, we have seen an increasing engagement on the part of U.S. colleges in particular with education agents around the world. And uh, in a recent survey uh, earlier this year, uh, more than half of U.S. colleges were either working actively with education agents already or planning to do so in the near future. So it's, it's, it's becoming a, a much more important channel for international recruitment in the U.S. than it had been even several years ago. Another expectation for the new normal is that virtual internships seem to be here to stay, which I thought was interesting as we are now starting to see which types of online and virtual options for students will remain popular even though borders are reopening. Craig, virtual internships, will these indeed remain serious options that allow students to earn academic credits and, and to gain work experience? Well, it sure looks like it. You know, it's it's one of the things uh, that can be said of the pandemic is that it has proven to be an accelerator for a number of trends that were taking shape before any of us ever heard about COVID. And uh, one of those is, I think, virtual internships. You know, we've all learned to meet remotely, study remotely, conduct business remotely over the last year or so to a much greater extent and much more quickly than we would have otherwise done. And virtual internships have been part of that story. You know, teaching and learning pivoted online. And so did those aspects of work integrated learning that were a normal parts of, of classrooms around the world. And so now we see, you know, a much greater footprint for virtual internships, Uh, whether those are organized by third-party service providers or by the institutions or by the students themselves. But it opens up, I think, a wonderful range of opportunities for international students in particular, because one of the big issues that we're going to hear a lot more about this year and, and into the future is the need for additional career support services for international students and career supports that are oriented both towards employment incomes in their host country, whatever country in which they're studying, as well as in their home country. And of course, with virtual internships, students can undertake work practicum or work placements, both within the host country and if they wish in their home country as well, and begin to build those important, you know, post-graduation networks in both places. So I think there's a particular relevance for international students there. So virtual internships are another ingredient in the mix that is available for international students. Yeah, very much so. Before we move to the main topic, Craig, some optimism coming out of Australia, where at the beginning of this month, more than 1,200 delegates attended the Australian International Education Conference. Main discussions here were not so much about how to recover, but about how to recover better by reflecting on lessons learned during the pandemic. Greg, can you give some examples of those lessons learned in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. A part of the optimism that you're thinking of is that we're starting to see some movement around border restrictions in Australia for the first time, you know, really this year. The Australian borders have been largely closed to international travelers and certainly to uh, foreign students. 
since the beginning of the pandemic. So we're talking about more than a year and a half now. And the expectation is that they will largely remain closed until well into 2022. However, we are seeing a number of new pilot programs that will support the safe return of students in cities and states around Australia. We're also seeing that uh, starting in November, there will be an easing of restrictions for Australian travellers that are travelling abroad, with an expectation that that will lead to a further easing of border restrictions for foreign travellers coming into Australia. And so that has definitely set a kind of optimistic tone for the conference uh, earlier this month. Some of the interesting lessons that were explored at the conference were really the ways in which educators and other stakeholders in international education have adapted to this extended border closure. And so there was a lot of talk about the, you know, obviously the important role that remote learning has played during that time and the ways in which uh, remote learning or online learning may factor in the delivery of education programs for international students going forward. I think, you know, a consensus view that there's going to be a, obviously a more significant role for online teaching and learning after the pandemic as well. The other thing that we heard a lot about was the establishment of essentially study hubs for on the part of Australian institutions in markets in particularly in Asia, where, you know, they would set up learning centers where students that were were not unable to travel to Australia, could nevertheless travel to those centers and study together in their local areas, right? So creating an aspect of campus culture, an aspect of networking and peer support, even for those students while they were studying remotely and unable to continue their studies in Australia as they would have otherwise done. And so I think, you know, the silver lining in all of that disruption and challenge that the pandemic has brought on is that uh, there are new models of education delivery emerging. And uh, educators and students and other stakeholders alike are learning how to do all of these things better as we go. And so the open question is, how will that all factor in the future, in the long-term future after COVID? And we don't see that clearly right now, obviously, but I think there's some important models there that will endure long after we're dealing with COVID. Well, let's hope borders will reopen soon and that these lessons learned can indeed be put into practice. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we explore the educator agency relationship and ask, is there room for improvement? I have in front of me a very recent 75 pages UK report about the roles and responsibilities of education agents and about how the quality in the agency's student recruitment process can be increased. The report was commissioned by Buila together with the UK Council for International Student Affairs and was published by Edified. The good thing is that we have both Wheeler and Edified with us today to share with us some of the main findings and conclusions of their report. Welcome Oliver Fortescue from Edified and Bobby Mehta from Wheeler. And Bobby, if I may start with you, can you please briefly introduce yourself and provide some of the background behind this report, please? Yeah, so uh, my name is Bobby Mehta. I'm the chair of Buila. Buila is an organization. We represent almost uh, 130 plus universities across the UK. One of the, the key things international offices do in the UK is look after international student recruitment, mobility, inward, outward mobility, partnerships, etc. And a key part of the work the universities uh, do in their international global operations is work with agents. Agents over the years have developed in lots of different countries and are an important part of the way institutions uh, recruit, support, 
and get students to come from all over the world to, to study in the UK. So we decided that it was a, a good opportunity for us to look at how agents operate, what are some of the best practices uh, in different universities and how we can share those best practices with each other and create a, a sort of framework that would be something that all universities could sign up to to say look these are the minimum things we would like to to do with agents these are the minimum expectations we have of agents so students also know what they can expect agents know what they can expect and ultimately institutions know what what they can expect so that we can formalize that in a, a, a much more concrete way thanks bobby and oliver edified surveyed over 300 education agent managers 500 international students and more than 100 higher education staff, in addition to focus groups and interviews with other industry stakeholders. We'd love to hear more about the insights that this impressive research has provided, but let's start with a brief introduction from you as well. Hi, yes, my name's Oliver Fortescue, and I'm uh, an education consultant with Edify, and I've spent a few years working in the UK sector and a few years in the Australian sector. So sort of look at it from a couple of perspectives. In terms of the report, I, mean, I think what was really interesting was that Wheeler and UKCs chose to include students as a key segment, uh, quite rightly so, and we're really interested in the student experience and student perceptions of the agent and university relationship. And I think that's something that's been missing perhaps from earlier pieces. Really what we found was that on the whole, students were extremely happy with the services that they were getting from agents. In fact, overwhelmingly so. There were areas that they just were unaware of, so some perhaps some transparency issues. And that certainly was something that came up from providers and indeed from agents themselves as well. And that sort of led to a few recommendations, um, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But really, there isn't a big problem in the UK that we were trying to solve. It's about improving and building on what was already there. And what are some of the areas for improvement that you have uh, concluded in your report? The main areas that we've recommended introducing a, a national code. Now, of course, there is the London Statement and the British Council has good practice guidelines for agents provider relationships. But it was felt that actually it was a bit disjointed. People weren't always aware of these different codes and different guidelines and that bringing them all together would be a, a good way to have a focus for everybody uh, around quality. So we developed on behalf of Wheeler a, a national code, which um, will be sort of released in, in the coming weeks. And that had a lot of agent input. It was really a co-design process, partnership process, as well as getting the sort of input from, from universities and from other sector bodies as well. We also recognize that it isn't, the quality agenda is not an agent issue, it's a partnership issue, and that the providers themselves recognized that there were a, a lot of practices that they could improve to across the board. Uh, there's some great practice out there, and there are pockets of excellence at almost every institution. Indeed, when asked to refer which institution does agent management really well, over 80 universities were cited by the agents, suggesting that there's good practice around the place. So what we tried to do was actually find those pockets of good practice and build a guide for providers with all the good practice from across the sector so that providers really had a, a sort of how-to guide on best practice in managing education agents. You just mentioned the London Statement, and from what I recall, that statement dates from 2012, which is quite a few years ago. Craig, do you recall what was the initiative behind the London Statement and some details of that statement? 
Yeah, well, the London Statement was basically an attempt to kind of codify a code of conduct for agent behavior, good conduct on the part of agents. You know, it's an interesting example, but what could be said of it, as, as could be said of many other examples of, of codes of practice in this area, is that they're very much focused on agent behavior and agent conduct. And of course, the agent is one player in a context involving other very important players, including the educators themselves, the students and their families, and so on. It's not just, you know, the agent is not a, a, a sole actor in, the, in that sense. And so I think what's interesting about some of the more contemporary frameworks that we're starting to see or, or that are under discussion, certainly around the world for agent relations, have to do with uh, kind of balancing responsibilities and more consideration for codes of conduct for, for some of those other players, including especially educators. I think that's an interesting balance to try and strike in these frameworks. Oliver, that statement is from nine years ago. What is missing in the London statement if we were to upgrade it to 2021? It wasn't so much that it was missing. Really, it was very much guideline-based and, and open to some level of interpretation and also just not necessarily well-known across the sector. We actually used a lot of the content from both the British Council and the London Statement and referenced it regularly. But what we tried to do was actually give concrete examples of how agents could provide evidence of compliance or evidence that they are able to deliver a great student experience. And I think that's where sometimes the, um, the codes fall down is that, that, that they provide a sort of statement you must comply with x but then don't really provide any sort of explanation of what does that mean what what does it mean for the agent what does it mean for the provider how is this going to be managed and they sit there as sort of documents that have a real purpose or sort of have a really good purpose a moral purpose but aren't necessarily applied and what we've tried to do is make this code really easy to apply uh, really easy for agents to understand and how they can actually show that they're complying with the code. The title of this podcast is The Educator Agency Relationship, Is There Room for Improvement? The research surveyed universities as well. Were there any conflicting views on what the two groups felt was needed to make the relationship successful? Well, as you can imagine with 100 and plus universities, there were some conflicting views amongst the universities themselves, as there were amongst the hundreds of agents. However, the sort of themes that came through were often around transparency on both sides. I think the agents did a really good job of saying, yeah, we, we were really keen on this idea. We want more guidance, etc. But we would also like to see some, some provider improvements and more consistency. And that certainly was the, the, the sort of goal of the good practice guide as part of that. I think where the there was some Perhaps some areas that people didn't necessarily understand, certainly around sub-agents. Uh, often we found that um, the agents were keen on a more honest and transparent conversation. And universities were just sort of, uh, some universities, I should say, were really finding it a wicked problem. And so sort of felt that it was easier just not to have that conversation. Now, that seems to be evolving quite rapidly since the advent of uh, an increasing number of aggregator agents coming into the market. And that, that's, I think, a good thing. So... On the other side, I think universities often felt that the relationship was perhaps a bit still supplier provider or supplier contractor. And I think through this work, that's that's evolving quite rapidly now more into a partnership type model, which I think is really important. I do think that the thing that really impressed me was that how incentive schemes and, and more money was, of course, welcomed by agents. But it really was not the key driver. And I think that's something that we've misunderstood. I certainly myself probably misunderstood that. 
getting a good student outcome is the most important thing for the agents uh, by far. And when you actually looked into that, they said, well, 43% of their students comes from referral. And of course, that means they have to get a good student experience because they're not going to get more referrals if they don't do that. I think that's something that really was eye-opening for all of us in the sector uh, and perhaps sort of something that some of us had not quite understood. Right. Well, I guess we can only agree that indeed a good student experience is paramount. Now you just mentioned uh, transparency. Uh, Bobby, the research calls for greater transparency. How far should this go? Should commission be disclosed? And if so, who to? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think when you look at the research uh, and the, the work that's been done, I think one thing that comes out very clearly is that there is a lot of good practice already in existence. You know, there is clearly both on the uh, agent side and on the university side, lots of good things in, in practice. And actually the disclosure of commission, I think is an individual institution and an individual agency decision in terms of whether they have uh, complete transparency around that. It is commercial in its nature and by any commercial transaction, it becomes something which is sensitive information. And it, what one, one of the things, particularly in the UK, that is encouraged is competition and commercial competition and you know commercial commission rates and things like that do drive competition and uh, do drive competitive practices so i think it is an interesting question i know there are a number of commentators over the years that have encouraged commission uh, rates should be transparent i think what we do in, in this piece of work is that students should be aware that there is a commercial relationship between institutions and agents and that there is payment that does take place. I think that as a minimum is, is a must and uh, that does come through in, in the work that Oliver and Edify have done with us. So I think that is, a, a, I think, a positive step in, in, the, in that direction. But any more than that, I think it comes down to each institution's uh, own decision and how they feel about doing that. As I mentioned, it's a thorough and detailed report of 75 pages, but I'm sure you can share with us what are your top practical tips for agents and educators to improve the relationship, Bobby? Yeah, I think one of the things I've seen both uh, in this report and, and through this process and before and now is the student. You know, the student has to be at the center of everything that we are doing. Transparency, compliance and doing everything for the right reasons. Hopefully this will also give government agencies and other stakeholder body groups the reassurance that universities and agents are doing things in the best interest of students and are doing it in a very constructive and positive manner uh, and in a very transparent and compliant manner. And we obviously agree that this is a, a great initiative, but Oliver, why is all of this important now? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think um, we started the research before COVID started to really take off and we tried to look at it uh, as we were doing the research as if we were all going to be back in the normal pre-COVID type world. And that sort of soon became clear that wasn't going to happen. We weren't going to just have a few months of disruption. So I think what some of the, the, the things that are sort of in the report uh, have started to come into fruition already, greater use of technology in the process, greater consultation and, and planning and partnering with, with agents about much broader issues than just getting the students in. So looking at sort of more policy metrics 
that can benefit both the partner and the agent. A lot of the initiatives actually codifying what's already there, uh, so that that's something to be clear of. And I think some of that is 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 useful for explaining our sector to people who aren't practitioners, who aren't involved in the sector. Uh, international education is a huge industry for, for many countries now, but it is still one that is not well understood by people who work outside it. And I think anyone who, who just tries to explain it at a dinner table or, or something like this to someone else, you get a lot of blank looks about this is an industry, people do this as a mm-hmm. job. So I think that's important for a number of reasons, not just for um, you know, the, the economic and social benefit that it brings. But again, in countries where we're recruiting students, it, it's understanding how this process works, the transparency around the process, so that you can make more informed decisions. I think the other thing to, to, to point out is that it's really important now post-COVID with regard to agents is that they have become so much more important. As you've alluded to earlier, there's a lot more services being offered to students. As providers, we rely on them a lot more to communicate in the markets. And to do that effectively, uh, they need the tools. And that includes you know, well-done training, being responsive. I think one of the things that came through was that they don't want every bit of information all at once. They want just-in-time information and access to to information that's relevant to when they're talking to the student there and then. And so the curation of information is going to become increasingly important. And, and we all know this. This has sort of been an ongoing process that as a sector, we haven't been wonderful at promoting ourselves and promoting the information that need, is needed as well as we would like. And I think this has sort of highlighted that, that a lot of what we've got to do is, is to communicate better. Um, and frankly, if there's one thing to take away from all of the research, that, that it's that it, it's to, to to be better at communicating and i think this is providing a bit of a platform for that um you know the consultations with stakeholders with the british council with students with uk all of these different groups as uh, recognizing that a coordinated voice will benefit the uk so i think that's why it's important particularly for the uk um is that as we're in this sort of opening up environment and with Australia and New Zealand at the moment still not open, there's a great opportunity for the UK to tell the world what a great study destination it is and show that we're really trying to keep the quality high uh, and the experience high. And I think post-COVID, that, that's a really important factor for, for decision makers and parents and influencers. Thank you. Well, I think there's always room for proper improvement and it's good to have proper research to base that improvement on. Um, For those interested, the report is available for download. And if you wish to receive a copy, please email us at podcast at ISEF.com. Coming up, a question from the industry. But first, a message from our sponsor. Talking about educator agency relationships, good communication is of course crucial and communication includes the exchange of information and documents and we all know how time consuming and complex things can get in our sector. Think of the large variety of documents, papers, visa, certificates, etc. that are involved in international student recruitment processes. Our sponsor, FileInvite, has a solution to efficiently manage these processes and with us is Jackie Young, Vice President Customer at FileInvite. Jackie, welcome to the ISAF podcast and do tell us how file invites document management solutions can help student recruitment professionals save time and reduce cost. Thanks, it's great to be here. File invite is fast becoming an industry standard for automated document and client information collection. 
Already it's used extensively in financial services and banking industries. And we see that it can be applied in the international student recruitment field and international education as well. A lot of our customers are using File Invite to collect all the information needed to process complex applications. A lot of times that's things like mortgages or business loans, and it could also be student applications as well. It's become their secret weapon and it gives them a competitive edge. File Invite is really an easy to use platform and we focus on providing a great customer experience. So for agents who would use something like File Invite, they're able to offer a really professional uh, and streamlined experience to students and also to their educator partners. They can use a, a portal to collect all the documents and there they can sign, upload documents and get turnaround times for completing applications a lot faster. One of the university partners we work with has been able to increase their application completion rates by 50%. Can you give us a concrete example of the amount of time that people can save by using File Invite? Right. We know from speaking with our customers, they get massive efficiency gains. Some report that they're saving a minimum of two hours per application. So if you're processing 100 students a year, that's 200 hours saved. And that is a ton of time that you could be using to do something much more productive and high value, like building important relationships with students and educators. Those are some impressive numbers, and I guess who doesn't want to save two hours per application? That's quite impressive. For those interested, Jackie will be attending ISAF Berlin and ISAF Virtual Miami, so you can meet her there, but you can also visit fileinvite.com. Join the conversation on the ISAF podcast and share your industry questions with us. Just email podcast at ISAF.com. We have received the following question from an agency that I thought was quite interesting. Here it goes. We see prices rising worldwide across many areas, housing, travel, cost of living, energy, medical, and I can go on. At the same time, the forecast is that the number of international students will continue to grow significantly. How realistic is this forecast? Will all these students and their families still be able to afford studying overseas? Oliver, do you have an opinion on this? Well, I think a lot of our, or a number of our source markets have developed uh, outstanding education systems themselves. So there are now more options. I think even new study destination in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, including India that is actively now recruiting international students. Obviously, China is one of the biggest recruiters of international students these days, but often isn't put with the English speaking countries in terms of numbers. So I think there are options. And I think students, now that they have such incredible access to information, are evaluating those options more clearly and, and with, with or have a better view of the options available to them. So I don't think it will slow down student mobility, but it may change some of the destinations over time that students are choosing. Right, so more international students that have more options. Do you have anything to add to that, Bobby? I agree. I think mobility will continue. Where that mobility goes through, I think the big four or five countries that international students go to will still be the countries of choice. But yes, there are more study destinations which will be coming on stream and uh, will continue to grow. And I think also things like price will come into that because there will be study destinations which are cheaper than the big 
four or five countries uh, that currently US, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. So I think those types of factors will come into it. But I, I, I do think whilst there is more choice in a number of the countries such as China, India, etc., uh, of local provision, I still think there is a shortage in a lot of countries as well. So, you know, a number of countries where the demographic of young people between the age of 18 and 25 are growing, for example, at a, a, a very quick rate, there isn't the, the space in the higher education systems to cope with the demands. So I think mobility for the foreseeable future globally will continue. That brings us to the end of this month's ISAF podcast episode. Thanks very much, Oliver, Bobby and Craig for your contributions. And thank you, Jackie Young from File Invite for sponsoring this month's ISAF podcast episode. And thanks very much to our listeners for spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us. Please join us again next month. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to get in touch and share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. This episode was sponsored by File Invite, automated document collection for student recruitment professionals.